I'm going to pray. Gracious God, we say thank you for gathering us together today. Uh, we say thank you for our continued journey uh, through First uh, Corinthians and all of the different things that it uh, brings up for us. Dear Lord, we are thankful uh, for your son, Jesus Christ. So be with us in this moment. In your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as the text was already read, I want to uh, label or give this sermon the title, uh, thank you, the uh, title, The Gift of Wisdom, uh, in parentheses, very familiar, uh, WWJD, What Would Jesus Do? Um, The phrase, What Would Jesus Do?, often abbreviated WWJD, became popular, particularly in the United States, in the late 1800s, after the widely read book by Charles Sheldon entitled, In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? The phrase had a resurgence in the U.S. and elsewhere in the 1990s as a personal model for adherents of Christianity uh, who used the phrase as a reminder of their belief in moral, uh, in the moral imperative to act in a manner that would demonstrate the love of Jesus through the actions of their adherents. In popular consciousness, the acronym signifying question, what would Jesus do, was associated with a type of bracelet or wristband, which became a popular accessory for members of the Christian youth groups, both Catholic and Protestant, in the 90s. And I remember this phenomenon because, like, it was my goal more so to have bands that matched the outfits that I had. So it was like black one for the black shoes, the red one for the red shoes. Like it was all a part of like the coordination of an outfit. And it was, you know, pretty, pretty quickly uh, it was reduced, I think, to a joke for most folks. Like we didn't we didn't really take it seriously. Like the bands got popular. They were like with a dollar a piece. You know, people would wear 16, 17 of them on their arm, probably cutting off circulation. Um and then, like, kind of in a moment of sarcasm, when you were, like, doing something un-Christ-like, people would be like, what would Jesus do? And even though we reduced it to a joke, or I think what we would call now, like, a, a hashtag statement, um, I think that there was really power in that question. I think that there's real power in that question, what would Jesus do? If that question permeated every decision that we make. But part of the thing that I realize is that most of us, when we act, when we speak, when we do certain things, we don't really consider what Jesus would do as much as what we want Jesus to do for us. You know what I mean? Like, most, most of our approach to stuff is like, hey, this, this is what I want. Lord bless it. Right? Like, how, how many of us, you don't have to raise your hand because I want you telling yourself, but like, if you think to yourself how often we just kind of like act on something, act on an impulse, act on a desire, and then ask God to bless it like retroactively, versus how many times we actually like pray and discern before we move, you probably be alarmed at how often we make decisions without being guided and shaped by the Holy Spirit. Amen? And so, to some degree, I kind of want that thought 
uh, to guide our time today. Because if I, if I was to really oversimplify Paul's letter or the kind of undergirding message of Paul's letter, it will probably be that he was trying to shape the Corinthians' thought process by having them consider really what it meant to live out their lives in a way that honored Jesus Christ. What it really meant to have the mind of Christ. And one of the things I think we have to continuously acknowledge is this, that as we navigate this letter, um, we have to acknowledge that Paul was profoundly shaped by his relationship with Jesus and his call. And part of the reason why I bring it up is because I think sometimes it's easy because of just the sheer volume of the letters that Paul wrote. That we, you know, and we even have like, you know, letters and classes and books about like Pauline theology, right? We forget that like Paul's entire like theological approach to life was centered around this profound interaction that he had with Jesus that changed his life. Which is why Paul always kind of talked about being an apostle called by Christ and pointing people back to the cross. Because sometimes I even think in like modern conversation, like we talk about Paul so much as if Jesus was secondary to Paul. But if you really spend time in Paul's letters and in his language, he's constantly trying to point us back to understanding that the centerpiece and the framework of everything that we do is centered around what Jesus taught and how Jesus lived. And so what would Jesus do? again, was more than just this kind of like simplistic acceptance of like our call to morality as much as it's this jolting thing that really asks us or forces us to think like, no, what, what would Jesus actually do in this moment? And if, and if we actually answered that question, with a knowledge that is given to us and we'll get to that, you know, through our relationship with the Holy Spirit, I think it would change a lot of the approach that we have to a lot of stuff in life. Even as a parent, as a parent, as a spouse, like if I really ask myself, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond right now in this moment when I'm angry, when I'm feeling attacked, when I'm feeling slighted, when I'm feeling underappreciated or whatever, you know, things you feel in relationships, or even in, you know, in jobs or whatever, you know, like, how, how would Jesus respond? What would Jesus' response be? Like, what does it really mean to love the other, to love my neighbor in this moment? And so I think that the, that the, the, the unfortunate thing about the way that we make fads out of stuff in our society is sometimes we make fads out of stuff that is super profound. And the question is, as, as, as simple as what would Jesus do has such a profound impact on a believer that I think that if we really all kind of guided ourselves by that, it will really change how we are perceived in the world. And so Paul, as we continue, starts his letter because he's trying to get the Corinthians to this point. He's trying to get them to a point where their actions and their thoughts are guided by and shaped by the Holy Spirit through the relationship 
that was given to them through Jesus Christ on the cross. And so the first thing that he does in chapter one, and we kind of did this already, he starts off by talking about what's going right in the church. Like he greets them very, you know, Paul-like and my brothers, right? It's this reminder that even when things are not going well, even when we are not living up to the standards that is set by God, even at our worst moments, that we are not defined by those bad moments and those bad decisions. That makes sense? So he, so he's, he's kind of gearing them up because ultimately what he wants to see is some transformation and some change. And so he starts off by saying like, before he gets into the stuff that they're doing, he's kind of reminding them like, hey, here's where you are when you were started. There was, there was a beauty here. Here's some, some good things that are happening. So let's hold on to those things. And for me, that's important because I think sometimes when we start like working through challenges and stuff, you know, tough stuff, we can get so lost in the challenges that we forget that there's actually, that there's been good things, there are currently good things, and there will be good things. And that the, pre- the present, presence of mistakes and challenges does not erase the good things that are happening. And I think that it was important for Paul to do that because some of the stuff that he'll come to talk about later is really tough stuff. And I think it's important for us to do it in the life of our congregation too. As we tackle tough things, we have to be reminded that, hey, we have not been and won't be reduced to the times in our shared life together when we make mistakes or when challenges happen. And as he moves on from kind of giving them encouragement and what was going right, then he also wanted to galvanize them around the thought of the importance of the cross. And we've been talking about that for the past couple of weeks. So we talked about what it meant to be people who are shaped by the suffering of the cross and not only the glory of the resurrection. And so so there's this thought, okay, so here's the good things. Here's one shift that I need you to make. Remember that our our ministry is shaped by the cross, right? The the suffering, uh, the shame. But not only that, then he also acknowledged, but here's the thing. Our ministry, our life together is shaped by the cross. But to people who haven't accepted the cross, what we're being called to doesn't make sense. And so there's this realization that in addition to the, 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 the suffering and the, and the work and the pain that comes along, along with bearing our crosses every day, there's also the ridicule, right? The whole adding insult to injury piece. And so Paul then, as we get to this part in chapter 2, has kind of laid out some really foundational uh, uh, pieces that are important to understanding the next kind of shift that he's trying to make in the thoughts of the Corinthian church. So if you read verse 6, it says this, it says, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of uh, this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. 
No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as so let me stop there. So one of the things that Paul is trying to get the folks to understand is that part of what what should shape us or what we should strive for is wisdom. That we should strive for God-centered wisdom. And and, and part of what he does is he is pointing out to uh, the Corinthian church that the wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age will pass away. That there, that there is a, a finite place for earthly knowledge as compared to the eternal wisdom of God. And what he is, 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 is pushing for the Corinthian church to understand then is that our goal should be to connect and be led by God-centered wisdom. And here is why he has to do this. Because again, if you read the earlier chapters, he has seen the influence of the affluent, intelligent, philosophical leaders of the church. And they began to be enamored by the intelligence and the very well-spoken uh, leaders at that point. And what, and what Paul was trying to get them to understand was like, hey, that's cool and all. But the wisdom that needs to shape your life and your thought is the wisdom that only comes from God. And so if you're going to seek after anything, seek after the wisdom of God because the wisdom that you've been accustomed to will pass away. And, and, And part of the thing is having to understand even now today the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Because by definition, knowledge is facts, is information, is skills acquired by a person through experience or education, uh, the theoretical or practical understanding of a subject. Knowledge, facts, information, right? To some degree, we all have knowledge of something, right? We're all knowledgeable. We can, we can, we can get on Google now. And be experts at anything that we decide to put in the search. The reason that I'm so intelligent is because I spend a lot of time reading. No, I'm just joking. Look, look. (laughs) But to some degree, we all possess knowledge. And even from a strictly uh, worldly standard, if you define like wisdom by earthly standards, it's the quality of having experience of knowledge and good judgment, the quality of being wise. But I think for the believer, wisdom encompasses then the ability to let the Holy Spirit control how we act out on the knowledge that we have and the knowledge that we gain through the relationship with God. In other words, godly-centered wisdom is our ability to take the, the knowledge that we have gained through, through study and through information, through, through learning and shared experiences, and submit that stuff to God and allow God to shape how we act out on it. Does that make sense? I was at a conference in Miami at the end of um, 
December. And don't get jealous because it was extremely warm, but I was indoors the entire time. I was like looking at the sun from the conference room. Um, and there was this pastor there, this guy named William Watley, and he had been pastoring for like 50-something years. It was crazy. So they had this, this, this section where he uh, shared just kind of some of his thoughts and experiences over, you know, five decades of ministry. And he talked about the importance of, you know, family, make sure you keep family first. He talked about um, the importance of, you know, taking care of your health and a couple of different things that I really felt convicted by. But one of the things that, that was really um, important for me too was he talked about godly wisdom as it pertains to even like stuff like money. So he started doing this whole thing about investing, right? And he had this whole, he was talking about how when he was younger, he was encouraged by a mentor to invest some of his, you know, some of his money to make sure. Because a lot of times, like, pastors aren't prepared for retirement, right? And he kind of goes on this, this tangent. And at the end of it, he says, hey, like, as ministers of the gospel, you need to make sure that you are investing your money in wise and godly ways. He's like, because everything that will make you money does not honor God. Right. And he was like, he said, so it was my personal thing not to invest in, you know, like drug companies, um, guns, like just certain things that he kind of listed that he. And, and so and the reason why I bring that up is because part of like godly wisdom versus even earthly wisdom or knowledge is being able to discern that even though maybe something isn't illegal or maybe that's something, you know, again, like something might make good sense, but it doesn't make God sense. And are we able to sacrifice things that will benefit us personally for the good of the entire kingdom? So a very, very tangible thing, and this might, this may or may not be a hot button thing, I don't know. But a very tangible example that I could think of is like the legalization of recreational marijuana. And if you read any of the like investment stuff, they'll tell you that because of the sweeping legalization across the country, that that's a very booming market to invest in. That the, it will yield a whole lot of results. But the decision that we have to make based on our godly given wisdom is whether or not we as believers invest our money in this particular way to yield results, but then what are the spiritual results of that? Am I making sense? Or am I losing people? <laughs> I really appreciate that you all talk back. Uh, so you, you, you see what I'm saying? And so, like, so part of it is kind of being able to discern, like, again, like how— how are decisions, again, like, what, what, what would Jesus do? And so Paul then is very intentional about saying that in all things, as we seek anything that's seeking God-centered wisdom, 
should be our goal. Because if God is really making our decisions for us, things look different. It was interesting that he said that none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That, that, that the lack of understanding, the lack of godly understanding often leads to persecution. The, the, the lack of godly wisdom created this disconnect between Jesus and the very people that he came to save. Because remember, right, who pushed the persecution was the religious leaders of the time. And so oftentimes, one of the indications in our pursuit that we, that we are really kind of following God's direction and God's will is how much pushback that we get. Because oftentimes, if things are too easy, then we probably have to kind of do a check and say like, hey, are, are, are we making decisions for ease and comfort, or are we making decisions that are going to force growth and advance the kingdom? Because that's the most important thing. Amen? It's the, it's the movement of the kingdom. It's the advancement of the gospel message. It's lives being changed and touched. And so Paul is realizing that in order for the Corinthian church to really live into its call, it has to be a church that's made up of people who are striving to get God-centered wisdom. Because when you have a body of people whose desire is to have God-centered wisdom, then you have a body of people who are making God-centered wisdom decisions. Amen? Amen. So verse 9, it says, However, as it is written, what no eyes has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with spiritual talks, words. Wisdom is a gift from God through the Holy Spirit. And so in part of in, in our pursuit is this recognition that our ability to even understand the mind of God comes from the Holy Spirit that is within us. And it's not something that we did to earn it. Right? It's, it's, it's like salvation in that way that we don't earn salvation. It's uh, we, we, we respond to the Holy Spirit urging us to connect to the Creator. And in that response, we are receiving the gift that God has freely given. In the same way, the Holy Spirit becomes our our interpreter, the Holy Spirit becomes the way that we can understand what it is that God is trying to say. Because nobody, like the scripture says, who can really understand or say that they know the mind and thoughts of God. 
So even no matter how, how, how you think you are with, and I'll just use, let's use family members, right? I think I know my sister pretty well. I'm pretty sure you know your siblings pretty well, right? But there, but there, but there are still things that if they don't share with you openly, you can't know. Like maybe, maybe you can guess it. Because you've been around them long enough to say, oh, you know, this is like typically when, when John starts doing like this, he's probably upset. Or when John starts doing this, he probably, if John calls me after 8 o'clock on a weekday, he's going to ask for something, right? Uh, you know, we kind of we have those things. But the reality is that, that there are still, still things that we carry That unless we share them openly and freely, people won't know, no matter how well they think they know us. And so what Paul is saying in this text that I think he wants the church to understand and for us to understand is that the things that we have come to know about God are things that have been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit that was freely given to us. And so as we pursue godly wisdom, that pursuit then is, is, is enhanced or connected to our relationship to the Holy Spirit. In other words, our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit will affect our ability to discern God's wisdom. Read this next verse. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. One of the things that that Paul has has laid out over the course of this text is that ultimately there's two types of folks. There's people who have responded to the message of the cross and in responding to the message of the cross have been given the ability from God to understand the things of God. Or there are people who reject the message of the cross. And because they've rejected the message of the cross, the things of God don't make sense. But I think one of the challenges that we have is that when we think about the Holy Spirit that is freely given to us, we sometimes neglect that our relationship with God, the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of us, our faith, our wisdom, are things that we have to constantly be working to strengthen. That, that, that as we enter into this relationship of salvation with Jesus Christ, that it is not intended for us to be like, hey, I got saved, I got the Holy Spirit, bam, I'm good. Let's coast until the Lord calls me home. But much like 
when you make vows, it's this starting point. It's a starting point that says, here is where you are when you start, but there is this, this, this indescript destination that you should be constantly working toward. And so as it pertains to wisdom, then our sensitivity again to the Holy Spirit will affect our ability to discern God's wisdom. And part of us has to recognize that there's always going to be an internal struggle between the spirit of God that is working inside of us and the spirit of the world around us that we are trying to leave behind. Because oftentimes it's competing messages. And so if we are not feeding ourselves, feeding our Holy Spirit with the things of God on a regular basis and often, we oftentimes don't have the ability to really sense the movement of God that's happening around us. Because the Spirit inside of us is weak. Because we haven't had lives that have been conformed to following it. So in in, in those ways, it's kind of like a muscle. That there is a certain amount of strength that we all have based on the kind of day-to-day things that we do, right? Me lifting up this, how many pounds is this? I don't know. This 0.9 fluid ounce bottle that probably weighs like a quarter of a pound exercises the muscle in my arm. Is it strenuous? No. On most days. No. Um, And so I can't expect that if the only thing I'm lifting during the day is a bottle of water and my book bag and my Bible because I spend hours and hours and hours and hours a day, right, that I will develop a beautiful bicep. Like, it's not going to happen. Which means that there has to be some intentionality about, obviously, the food that I eat, and then the time that I go to the gym and kind of figure out, okay, which, which, which weight is heavy enough to cause some strenuous action that will help develop that muscle, Okay? I'm going somewhere. <laughs> Not to the gym. Uh, <laughs> I need to get my money back. Um, <laughs> in, in the same way with our spirits, with the spirit that's inside of us, if we're not praying every day, how is it developing? If, if we're not reading scripture regularly and intentionally, how are we developing the Holy Spirit inside of us and, 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 and developing our relationship with God? And this is where I challenge folks who do the whole thing. Like, I don't go to church. Like, I don't need church to, to you know, have a relationship with God. For all intents and purposes, that's true. But, there, there is something that happens when the community of believers gets together and worships together through song and worships together through giving and worships together through service, right? 
that there, there, there is a strength, there's a, a exercising of the spirit that comes together when we come together. There, there is this concept of, of, of mutual discernment and mutual wisdom that happens when we come together. And so all of these things become the way that we as, as believers then develop the Holy Spirit inside of us in order to really be able to discern God's wisdom. In other words, we are called to both simultaneously be in community with other believers, but also be challenging ourselves in our daily lives to get closer and deeper. And I think one of the biggest things, if you see in verse, verse 16, when Paul says, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I think one of the, the biggest, kind of like obvious kind of uh, written out examples of the mind of Christ, right, is the scriptures. So in other words, we have all of the tools that we need to be a people who are driven by godly wisdom. Which is why I think in our denomination, we often talk about like, where is it written? Because, you know, sometimes we can get so deep and we, you know, looking for fresh revelation and fresh word and all those kind of things like that. But I think that sometimes that we forget when scripture says that God is the same yesterday to today forever that there's no fresher revelation than how God has revealed himself in Scripture. And that kind of mutual uh, understanding that we gain when we spend time in the Word together. So what would Jesus do? I think in order for us to know and in order for us to really live it out, then we have to be people who are dedicated to this, who are dedicated to this, who are dedicated to this, and who are dedicated to going out and serving God in the world around us. When we, when we submit our lives and our actions and our thoughts and our mind to God, when we are intentional about developing the Holy Spirit and strengthening the Spirit of God that dwells inside of us, what you will see are people who are formed and shaped profoundly by the power of the Holy Spirit that connects us to the work on Jesus Christ, to Jesus Christ on the cross. So that crucified Savior, that, record, that, that, that resurrected Savior, that is our God and our purpose. It's not super profound. It's not super deep. But we are called to pursue godly wisdom. And the ability for us to understand that wisdom has already been given to us freely. So what would Jesus do? What are we going to do? with the godly wisdom that he has given us and that he has called us to use to shape our lives and relationships with each other. Amen.